Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Genesis, chapter 25. Our sermon text for this morning is Genesis 25, verses 19 through 34. If uh, you're wondering why in the world are we in Genesis and why are we starting in chapter 25, uh, the answer is we, we actually started studying the book of Genesis in 2021, I think. That's, uh, and, uh, and then we, we looked at Genesis 1 through 11, and then we looked at John 1 through 5, and then we looked at Genesis 12 through the middle of 25, and the last, so the last time we were in Genesis was in January or February, I think, of 2023, and then we looked at John 6 through 12, and now we're back in Genesis. So um, it's not random, though it may appear that way if you haven't been here for all of that time. So Genesis 25, before we read that together, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the hope that we have of our heavenly promised land and the renewal of all things and of dwelling with you and seeing you face to face on the last day. And Father, we, we pray that you would increase our hope in your promises, your promises that you gave to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and your promises that are ours in Jesus, our Savior. We pray that you would help us to see that more fully this morning and Therefore, rest, rest in you and in your promises as we find them in Jesus, your son. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis, not Exodus, which is where I am. Genesis 25, there we go, uh, verses 19 through 34. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah to be his wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Pedane Ram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, if it is thus why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. 
Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. I want a good life. I expect that you do too. I want to be who I was made to be. I want to experience what it means to be fully human, fully alive. I want to see my family and friends flourish. Uh, The word the Bible uses to describe this kind of human flourishing is blessing. Blessing is one of the main themes of the book of Genesis. We've been out of the book of Genesis for a while now, so let me take a minute to bring us up to speed. In the beginning, God created the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, and God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and let the birds multiply on the earth. God created humanity and blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. God blessed the seventh day to be a day of rest and recreation. In the first two chapters of Genesis, God goes around declaring everything good and indiscriminately blessing everything that he made. And then we get to chapter 3. A new word comes into our vocabulary, curse. Because of human sin, God pronounces curses on Adam and Eve's work, and even on the ground itself. Paul in Romans 8 says that because of the sin of Adam, the creation was subjected to futility and is in bondage to corruption and groans. What was once blessed is now cursed. What was once good is now corrupt. What once rejoiced in God's work and creation now groans under the weight of sin. And one of the primary questions of the book of Genesis is this, is God's blessing possible in a sin-cursed world? Has the system been so broken that all we can expect is futility and corruption and death? Of course, as we follow the story in Genesis, things get worse before they get better. Uh, The first siblings produce the first sibling rivalry, and the first homicide. Cain kills his brother Abel and is cursed. The world becomes full of murder and violence and God destroys much of it in a flood, saving only Noah and his family. Is God's blessing possible in a sin-cursed world? Are we all doomed to lives of suffering and frustration or even just monotony and emptiness? Is groaning to be the primary sound of human existence? Every one of us will either live to see our friends die or die first and leave them alone. Vanity of vanities, says the book of Ecclesiastes. Well, if vanity, where is blessing? Yes, Genesis begins with creation and blessing, but human sin brings death and curse. Is that the end of the story? As we read, of course, we find that the answer is no. God continues to bless. 
As God blessed Adam and Eve, so God blessed Noah and his family after the flood. And so God blessed Abraham. And God promises all nations will be blessed in Abraham and his offspring. God has a plan to bless the world once again, again, and that plan begins with Abraham and his offspring. And the rest of the book of Genesis is really the beginning, God beginning to put that plan into effect and giving us hints of just what it will look like along the way. What we get in Genesis, of course, is not the fullness of blessing, but foretastes, appetizers that, that wet our lips for the main course that tell us there is something more and excite us for that something more. This morning we begin the story of Jacob, the grandson of uh, Abraham, the son of Isaac. And chapter 25, verse 19 begins, these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Now that title, these are the generations of, uh, means this is what comes from Isaac. And so this story from Genesis 25:19 through 35:29 is the story of Jacob, Isaac's son. And we come to what is really a pretty memorable story this morning. It's one of those Sunday school stories that many hear as kids and remember all of their lives. It plays well in picture Bibles. Uh, Jacob's life is full of memorable stories, colorful characters, lies, trickery, deceit, rivalry. But in that and through that, God is doing something. He is carrying out his plan to bless the nations and showing us just how that plan is going to come about. And so uh, as we think about the logic of blessing this morning, we're going to talk about three things, sovereignty, subversion, and foresight. Sovereignty, subversion, and foresight. God's sovereignty, uh, God's subversion of human expectations, and the foresight of faith. Uh, But first, let's just, let's go back over the story. Uh, In Genesis 24, so a chapter before, Abraham found a bride for Isaac. Abraham's servant traveled to Pedaniram and proposed to Isaac's, on Isaac's behalf, to Rebekah. And verse 20 tells us this, that Isaac was 40 years old at the time. Now Rebekah, like Isaac's mother Sarah before her, was barren. And it was a, a serious stigma in those days. It would have been a serious hardship for Isaac and Rebekah to endure. Isaac, however, prayed to the Lord for his wife, and God heard and granted his petition, and Rebekah became pregnant. And the next words in verse 22 of chapter 25 are, the children struggled together. Uh, now, the word struggled is actually a really strong word. It means oppressed or crushed. So the children are, are wrestling in her womb. Rebecca, of course, likely has no idea what is going on. I mean, there are no sonograms to tell her that she's having twins. And she was understandably distressed. And in fact, the commentaries say the Hebrew is kind of terse and cut off at this point. She's at a loss for words in verse 22. She can't understand what's going on. After all she's endured, she's saying, why this? Why now? What's going on? And so Rebecca turns to God, which is the right thing to do in this moment. She turns to God and she prays and she asks God, what is happening to her? And God tells her. He answers her prayer. Now, God doesn't normally respond verbally to our prayers, but this was a unique situation. God was working out his plan to bless the nations 
through Rebecca and her children. So God tells her, two nations are in her womb, two peoples who will be divided and the older will serve the younger. Now what Rebecca took from this, I'm not really sure. It, it, it really is actually pretty cryptic after all. In fact, in verse 24, it says, when her days to give birth were completed, behold, twins. Oh, maybe Rebecca said, that's what it meant. Two nations, oh, two babies. Or maybe she figured that out months before. We don't really know. But these twins were different from the start. Esau was red and hairy. Esau sounds a bit like the word for hairy. His other name is Edom, which means red. Jacob comes out grasping his brother's heel. Jacob sounds like the word for heel and perhaps means he takes by the heel. At this point, verse 26, you'll notice we're told Isaac's age. He's 60 years old when his boys are born. Now, it's easy to pass over details like this, but what that means is Rebecca had been barren for 20 years. 20 years of heartache. 20 years of prayers. But God was faithful. God is faithful. He will bring about his promises and his purposes in his timing, and that's what he does here. The boys grow up. They continue to be unique, as many brothers are. Uh, the hairy Esau becomes a skillful hunter, a man of the great outdoors. Jacob is quiet. We'll come back to that. Dwelling in tents. That probably means he's a shepherd. Uh, th that connection is made earlier in the book of Genesis. Genesis 4.20 tells us Adah bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. Uh, Genesis 13.5 puts those two things together again. Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. I think the idea is the shepherding life was at least more settled than the one who made his livelihood by hunting. Esau was always out on the hunt, whereas Jacob stayed close to home with his flocks. Esau was a man of the great outdoors. Jacob was a homebody. Now, we shouldn't push that too far, of course, but that is the contrast the writer is trying to get us to see that he's highlighting for us. Isaac loved Esau. Actually, he loved Esau's barbecue. Uh, verse 28 literally says, Isaac loved Esau because of the game in his mouth. It's a very earthy way of putting it. Isaac loved the meat, and so he loved Esau. Rebecca loved Jacob. And we're not told why Rebecca loved Jacob. Perhaps it was because of the oracle. Perhaps Jacob was just a stay-at-home mama's boy and, and she loved him for it. Perhaps she loved Jacob because she could tell Isaac favored Esau. And it was kind of pity. We don't know. But whatever the case, this divided favoritism is a sign that things are probably not going to go well in this household. Uh, it's not going to be a nice, quiet home filled with brotherly love and unity. Well, one day Jacob is cooking stew. Esau comes in famished. The word is variously translated exhausted, faint, weary, whatever the case, he's worn out and he's hungry. And he says simply, give me some of that red stuff. And Jacob at this point is cool and calculating and a little callous. He says, sell now your birthright to me. Esau thinks, what difference does it make? Just give me some soup, I'm starving. Jacob says, swear it. 
So Esau swears and sells his birthright. Jacob gives Esau some bread and lentil stew. Esau eats, drinks, rises, and goes his way. It's a memorable story. It is literally and figuratively colorful with Esau's ruddy body and Jacob's red soup. But besides being entertaining, what do we do with it? Like we said a moment ago, what we see in Genesis is God working out his plan to bless the nations. And what we see here is the logic of blessing being played out. And we can put it like this, God's sovereignty subverts human power and expectations. The blessing comes not to the powerful nor to the righteous, but to the one who clings to it by faith. And we'll see that as we talk about three things from the text, sovereignty, subversion, and foresight. Uh, First, sovereignty. Uh, God's blessing would come about through God's sovereignty, both in terms of his power and his plan. God had blessed Abraham and promised to bless his offspring, but Isaac and Rebekah are childless. How will the blessing be carried on if there is no offspring through whom the nations will be blessed? And so Isaac prays, and God answers that prayer. As with Abraham and Sarah, God's promise is not moved forward by human effort. It doesn't come about through human ingenuity. God's promise comes about by human dependence upon God's power. Isaac prays, God answers that prayer. Prayer is the the means of dependence on the power of God. God's blessing comes by God's power. God's blessing also comes through God's plan. Two children are in Rebecca's womb, two nations. Uh, Paul says this in Romans 9, 11 to 12. Scott read us the whole context earlier, but I'll just read these two verses. Paul says, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. God has a plan to bless the nations And that plan is going to be carried out through Jacob, not Esau. You know, we often look at the world and we see a world of chaos, a world without order, a world without meaning. We think, I've got to make my own meaning. I've got to secure my own destiny. My future is in my hands. But what we see here is God determining destinies before the twins were born. Paul, in the Romans passage just mentioned, goes on in chapter 9, verse 19, and says, well, you will say to me then, why does God still find fault? For who can resist his will? See, we think if God is sovereign, then human beings are not responsible. But that's not the case. In fact, uh, this is something that keeps coming up in the book of Genesis. It's interesting. At the end of his life, Joseph, Jacob's son, will say to his brothers, who you may know, threw him down a well and then sold him into slavery. He will say to them in Genesis 50, verse 20, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. The implication of Joseph's words is that there are, are two wills at work in one and the same situation. The human will of his brothers, who meant evil, and God's will who meant good. And this is a mystery, to be sure, that some find hard to accept. People say either God is sovereign or human beings are responsible. We can't quite wrap our brain around both. And of course, that's why it's a mystery. 
Biblical mystery is when we have two biblical teachings that we must hold together, but we can't quite figure out how they fit. We have two puzzle pieces and they don't seem to connect. And we have a choice in this moment. We can either believe human wisdom, these things actually don't fit, and we toss one or the other pieces of the puzzle away, or we accept God's revelation. We say, I know these two things are true. I don't know how they fit together, but that's okay because I trust God. I take him at his word. And that's what Joseph did in Genesis 50. And here in this story of Jacob and Esau, we actually see God's will being worked out through human choices. God makes promises about the two children. The older will serve the younger. And then little by little in the course of the story, we see that play out by their character and their choices. Blessing comes by God's sovereign power and plan, which he works out in the contingencies of human dependence and choice. And this, of course, is the way it works in the gospel. God has a plan to redeem the world from sin and reconcile us to himself, and that plan is worked out through the contingencies of human choice. Uh, Peter says this on the day of Pentecost, reflecting on the life of Christ in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to 24. Peter says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. See, blessing comes by God's sovereign power and plan, but worked out in the contingencies of human dependence and choice. And I wonder if you know that that is true in your own life. God is sovereign over every moment. Not a hair falls from our heads apart from God being sovereign over that. If you belong to Christ by faith, God is at work for your good and for his glory in your life. Whatever happens, God is at work for your good. Now that doesn't mean that all things are good, by no means. Some things are very bad, evil even. But God is at work in that for good. Others may mean evil, but God means it for good. Blessing comes by God's sovereign power and plan worked out in the contingencies of human life. Second, that's sovereignty, second, subversion. Uh, God's plan is never what we expect. Some people look at the world and they just see chaos. Other people see an order, a pecking order. Good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people, we say. We have a a kind of rigid system of cause and effect in our minds. Work hard and life will go your way. We read moral causes into everything. You know, if she had been a better daughter, this wouldn't have happened to her. Or if he had been a better father, his children would have turned out better. You know, for some, the race is always to the swift, the battle is always to the strong, riches are always to the wise. We have this image of winners and losers in our minds, and perhaps we could even pick them out of a lineup. We could point to people and say, they're going to be a winner in life. They're going to be a loser. The problem is God's sovereignty consistently subverts human power and expectations. I think again about Esau and Jacob. Esau is the firstborn, and quite frankly, a real man's man. He's a man of the outdoors with a big beard and a taste for venison. 
Right? He's a hunter and, and so a warrior. He's the kind of guy you would pick for the captain of your football team. Jacob, on the other hand, not so much. He's the second born, which uh, even as a twin in that culture meant a lot. He dwelt in tents. He's a homebody. He's not out hunting. He's staying home with the sheep. And he's quiet. Quiet. That, that word quiet has given translators and commentators trouble. It, it really means, uh, at its most basic meaning, it means perfect, complete, sound, whole, innocent, having integrity. Uh, Job was a blameless man. That's the word being used here to describe Jacob, which seems kind of funny given what we know of Jacob. The heart in scripture can be deceitful or it can have integrity, this word that is used to describe Jacob. The interesting bit is that the word deceitful, like in Jeremiah 17, 9, which says the heart is deceitful above all things, sounds a lot like the name Jacob. But the writer uses the other word to say the deceiver isn't deceitful, he has integrity, even though we're about to see him live up to his name. So the writer is, is playing, on, do, playing on words here in a way that we don't necessarily see in English. The translation quiet, if I understand, comes from this thought process. One possible meaning of the word uh, is complete. In contrast to the outgoing Esau, Jacob's being described as a homebody who is complete in himself. That is, he, he doesn't get out much. He's a quiet kid. He keeps to himself. Now, Think about this for a minute. The way the writer is presenting these two people. Who would you rather have on your team? The athletic outdoorsman or the quiet homebody? And quite frankly, Esau and Jacob remind me of a more recent, somewhat famous pair of brothers in the Marvel movies, you know, Thor and Loki. The one all muscles and little brains, the other a sly trickster. Only in this story, the sly trickster is the star. God chooses the sly trickster. He chooses Jacob rather than Esau. Now, God does this, as Paul says, before the two are born, before either had done anything good or bad. God does not choose Jacob because he is a sly trickster, but he chose him nonetheless. He subverts our expectations and chooses the younger to serve the older. And this is what God is in the business of doing, isn't it? Using the weak things of this world to shame the wise, as Paul puts it. Demonstrating that human power, human might, human wisdom, human beauty cannot secure those things which are most important, the blessing of God. The truth is, as the writer of Ecclesiastes puts it in Ecclesiastes 9.11, under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. So then, as Paul says in Romans 9.16, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And this is what God shows us again in the cross. Jesus comes not as the strong and the wealthy and the attractive. He comes in weakness, poor, despised, rejected, like one from whom men hide their face. He was crucified in weakness. He died in weakness. He had nothing to commend him. He was a nobody from nowhere put to death by the Roman Empire for claiming to be something. They put him in his place, they thought. It appeared that they had won. But as Paul put it in 1 Corinthians 1, 27 and 29, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. 
God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And on the third day, God took what was weak and foolish to the world and raised Jesus from the dead, demonstrating the wisdom and power of God. Now, part of the point of this story in Genesis is surely, you know, Israel, the, the, the first people who would have read this story, Israel was often small and weak among the nations. They were not the cool kid on the block. They, they, they were not the, the strong. They were not the biggest nation. They were not the most powerful. They needed to remember God chooses the weak to shame the strong, the foolish to shame the wise, the low and despised, even the things that are not. And you need to remember that as well. Maybe you look at your own life and think, well, I'm a mess. I'm foolish in the world's eyes. I don't have my stuff together. Uh, Other people are zooming past me in the things of this age, getting degrees, starting families, raising kids, and I can't seem to hold down a job. But God chooses the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. He does not measure us by our worldly pedigree or academic resume. Or maybe you're one of the wise, Uh, maybe you're one of the strong, the mighty, the rich and powerful of this age. Know this, God will not accept you because of those things, because you are rich, because you are powerful, because you are wise. Jesus did not come for the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. And so what you need to see is not all of your strengths, but you need to see your spiritual poverty. You need to see the folly of your sin. You need to see your weakness in the face of sin's enslaving power. Then you will be in a place to come and receive grace and blessing at the feet of Jesus. Blessing comes through God's sovereign power and plan. And it comes as God subverts human expectations and who deserves what. And God chooses the weak and despised, even the sinful and lowly, to find forgiveness and blessing in Jesus. Third and finally, foresight. These two brothers are contrasted explicitly in verses 25 to 28. And then we get a a little vignette, a a short story further developing their character and showing the outworking of God's purposes in their lives. It begins in verse 29. It says, once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And you get the scene, right? Jacob, the homebody, is busy in the kitchen Esau, the outdoorsman, comes in tired from his hard day of labor. Esau says, let me eat some of that red stew. Except he doesn't actually say that. It's a bit more base than that. He says, let me feed. It's the word used for animals eating. Let me feed on some of that red stuff. He doesn't even bother finding the word stew in his vocabulary. Just that, that red stuff. Give me some of that. Esau is pictured as a hairy, hungry animal focused on his temporal bodily appetites. But Jacob is cold and calculating and callous. He says, sell now your birthright to me. He doesn't waste words. It seems even premeditated, like he's been thinking about this for a while and just waiting for his opportunity. Esau, of course, is concerned about one thing in this moment, food. I'm about to starve to death. What good is a birthright to me dead? Give me some food. Jacob says, swear to me now. So he swore and sold. Jacob gives Esau the bread and lentils, and Esau in rapid succession ate, drank, rose, went. Like an animal feeding, he does what he needs to do, satisfies his bodily appetite, and moves on. 
And the text ends, thus Esau despised his birthright. Neither brother is commendable here. Uh, You wouldn't say, go be like Jacob. Esau is little more than a hungry beast. He cares nothing about the future, about the promises. He doesn't value what God values. He values a full belly. Jacob is concerned about the future, but takes advantage of his brother's situation to secure it. And yet in this book of genealogies and promises, little could be more important than a birthright. What God values is the blessing and the promises that he is going to bring about. And Jacob, for all of his faults, at least values that. Now, think about this as well, and sometimes we miss this part. Jacob and Esau would have known Abraham. Uh, Abraham would have died, if, if, you, if you tease out the numbers, Abraham would have died when they were about 15. They would have heard the stories of God's promises, of their father Isaac's birth, of the offering on Mount Moriah and the provision of the ram. They would have heard the stories of the the passing on of the blessing to Abraham and to his offspring. They would have heard from Abraham what it meant to walk as a pilgrim in this world by faith. They would have known that God promised to bless the nations through the offspring of Abraham, that God had a plan to restore blessing to the nations, and that plan was Abraham and his children. Their birthright was blessing to them and through them to the nations. And Esau was happy to give that all up. He didn't value what God valued. He didn't value the promises of God laid out to Abraham, his father, and Isaac. Jacob, of course, was no saint either. He schemed and swindled, but he had this one thing going for him. He had his eyes on the future. There there was faith in the promises of God, and he wanted them whatever the cost. Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not commending Jacob for taking advantage of his brother, but he has this this one thing, doesn't he? The, The foresight of faith. He's valuing God's blessing that will be passed on to him. Unlike his brother who lives for the moment, who lives for this present age, Jacob is living for God's promise. Uh, To put it more in in New Testament language, Esau lived according to the flesh. He lived according to the desires of his flesh. He lived according to the appetites of his flesh. He was concerned about this moment and no other. He was not thinking about long-term losses, only short-term gains. Immediate gratification of his desires was all that mattered, not the promises of God that seemed so far off, so distant. The New Testament book of Hebrews pictures Esau as embodying the opposite of pilgrim faith. Esau was living according to the flesh. Jacob had at least one eye on the promise. He wasn't a holy man. He was no saint. But he had his mind set on the promise of God and the blessing of God. And here's the question for us. Are you living for the moment? Uh, Do you value what God values, his promises, and the future, and all that is to come in Jesus? Or are you living for the gratification of your appetites? And and I don't even mean sinful appetites there, but is your life oriented toward gratifying your flesh? Are you focused on your grades, your academic degrees, your, your marriage, your kids, your career, your retirement? None of those things are bad, but they are all things of this age that will pass away. Are they what are most important to you? 
or do you have your eyes set on the promises of God given to Abraham? Again, we come back to Jesus. And Jesus did have his eyes on the promises of God. Jesus was sure of what we ho he hoped for and certain of what he did not see. Scripture says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. He entrusted himself to his father. He died on the cross for sin. And then God fulfilled his promises and raised him from the dead on the third day, receiving the inheritance of the father, the promises given to Abraham. And Paul says that through Jesus and through his death, in Galatians 3, he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And do you see the logic of what Paul is saying there? It's Galatians 3, 13 to 14. You can go read it later on your own. Uh, the, the logic is this. It, it brings us back to where we started, doesn't it? In the beginning, God blessed everything. But sin brought curse. All humanity is under God's curse for our sin. But Jesus became a curse for us. He was accursed on the cross so that in Christ, the blessing of Abraham might come to us. And of course, we know something Jacob didn't. We don't have to swindle our brothers to go about getting that blessing. There is blessing enough to go around in Jesus. So do you have your eyes set on that blessing? Or do you have your eyes set on this age? Do you have your eyes set on the, 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 this present moment and the fulfillment of your appetites? Or do you have your eyes set on the child of Abraham who has inherited all the promises, Jesus, the seed of Abraham, according to the flesh. Paul again says in Galatians, if you have been baptized into Christ, you belong to Christ. And if you belong to Christ, Paul says in Galatians 3.29, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. See, if you believe in him, you are united to him. You have received the right to the blessing in him. Blessing comes by God's sovereign power and plan worked out in the contingencies of human dependence and choice. But God's plan is never what we expect. It subverts human wisdom. God sent his son to bear sin on the cross, to die for it, and to defeat death by death, and then rise again, receiving all the blessings of the Father. So now that blessing comes not to the strong and great of this world, not even to the pious and righteous of this world, but to those who have the foresight of faith, who look not to this age to satisfy, but to Christ, who's entered the age to come through his resurrection from the dead, and who offers the blessing of the age to come to all who look to him by faith. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would help us to look to Jesus. Help us not to live for this moment, but to live for Christ and for all of the blessings that are ours in him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.